Welcome to Conservative One, the podcast defending traditions and freedoms with George Christensen. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. Socialists don't like ordinary people choosing, for they might not choose socialism. We cannot afford to be so politically correct anymore conservative one g'day i'm george christensen australian member of parliament and host of conservative one the podcast defending traditions and freedom and i'm joined by a very special guest uh, a north queenslander in fact he's someone who has been an activist in the farming movement for quite some time some people in north queensland might know him others around the country might not have heard of him, but the bloke's name is Alan Parker. And I'm glad that you're with us, Alan Parker, uh, because I want to talk all things relating to farming and agriculture uh, today on this episode of Conservative One. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, mate? Oh, good evening, George. Um, Pleasure to be on your little podcast show, mate. And um, it's been a pleasure over many years to um, work shoulder to shoulder with you and trying to achieve something um, better for our industry and better for agriculture and better for Australia. Mate, basically, um, mate, I sold the farm on the uh, 28th of February. So it's 150 years of, of history. Uh, I was in partnerships with my father and, and you know, he had no other way out that um, that was his superannuation package. So we opted to sell the farm and it come with a bit of a tear, let me tell you. But any anyone out there at the present time who is farming, not just farming, but in the real sector, and what's happened just lately, anyone in business for that matter, is doing it damn tough and it's damn hard. And if you're focusing back on policies and you're focusing back on different elements that affect your business that you're not in control of, it makes it hard. But basically, mate, um, look, I started out as a young fellow and and, and, and went to uh, a cultural college and come out of that and I work for a very, very good um, businessman, John E. Came. He's a good friend of yours and a good friend of mine and he employed me for mm-hmm. nearly um, uh, 10 years on the farm and that's where I got to get my farming skills and then done a stint um, up in Cairns as a linesman and then come home to the family farm that's been in the district. Um, as I said, we sold it the other day and it's been in the district 150 years and then got introduced into agri-politics and took a role in a lo- local uh, cane grower group and it just and it just went from there and mate it's just a hard task and like i said earlier it's just a hard gig when things beyond your control whether it's political or whether it's um intervention from other parties like high water charges or high electricity charges it's it's damn hard to run a business and i don't want to categorize and say oh just farming or or, or just rural mate it, it's it's hard for everybody and and George, it's it's a pleasure. And when you asked me to do the show this afternoon, mate, I was quite happy to help you because you helped me on many occasions. Well, thanks very much uh, for that, Alan. And what you've said there about you've left the land. How many generations are we talking about that that farm was in the possession of your family and forebears? Five, George. Five generations. Five generations. So that must have been a very sad moment. Why? Ultimately, was that decision made? Was it, as you said, purely so that your dad could have a, a, a good nest egg in his retirement or well, it, it, was it just getting too hard? Mate, it, the bottom line is um, the monetary. The bottom line is the black line or the red line. And to farm, to keep it in the black line, to keep to keep it, uh, well, the progression of a farm is that the father goes and gets a small percentage of probably what really what the farm's worth. 
But, mate, the ability to do that under the current climate, and it's not just sugar. Sugar's frowned upon these days, I suppose, and they tell you to grow another crop, but it's hard to grow another crop when, when sugar's a four- to five-year cycle. And, mate, to answer your question, it's just explain, the bottom line. The, bo- the bottom line wasn't this. You, you, get, you get some people that are uh, economic rationalists, I guess, and, you know, they suggest that, oh, well, if that crop's not good, just grow another one. It don't work like that, do it? George, it doesn't because the politicians are ramming it down our throats. And, mate, I've got some friends. I've got some very good friends um, in the Greens. I've got some very good friends in the Labor Party. And, uh, mate, I was in the Young Nats for many years. And, mate, um, I've got a good friend in you. But I don't follow any political party at the present time other than the individual. And there's some damn good individuals out there representing us. But to come back to, yep, their answer is the rationalists come back and say it's all in productivity. Young fella, you just need to get that productivity up there and you'll survive. It's a nonsense. It's a furphy and they like to hide behind it. And, mate, I tell you what, in the real world, it comes back to the bottom line, what you receive for your end product. Mate, productivity makes a difference, but it's not a survival mechanism. So the rationalists out there that are thinking it's all in your productivity and you just need to to boost your productivity and stop slacking, you know, get better at it, mate, the top percent, will become the middle percent. The bottom percent might get up there to be the middle percent, but it's still not the key factor for the survival of any sector or any business. And, and mate, it, yeah, they hide behind it, George. Let's talk about some of the low-hanging fruit because I certainly see we've got a major problem in Australia. I, I, am, I am a massive supporter of agriculture. I mean, I, I've got to confess something. I couldn't grow a bloody lettuce if I tried, uh, but my grandfather was a cane farmer. You know, I was raised uh, on that cane farm. I've got vivid memories of sitting on the tractor with granddad and driving around. So that's something that doesn't leave you. It's almost like a cultural thing. And I suspect that that is the case for most farmers. And there's a lot of things that we could talk about why we need farmers. So we could talk about food security. I mean, extremely important to the nation. But actually, I also think that there is, and many countries have this, a benefit in having decentralised population. And if you're going to encourage employment, I mean, just for the good of the community, forget the economy, the good of the community, you will have to have agriculture. So I'm a big supporter of that. That's a little bit philosophical, and I'll talk about that later. But some of the low-hanging fruit in terms of what's inhibiting agricultural growth or, or even causing agricultural decline, one of those things you already mentioned, and that's the price of power. It is now just so far out of reach. How did you work through the rising costs in terms of power bills, water bills, you name it? How did you handle that as a farmer? George, to handle it, well, you either get you get your water cut off or you get your power cut off. So to handle it, they're the first, obviously the first bills you pay. Now you you stop the little items or the luxury items, your superannuation package that you might be building a nest egg, you know, helping your son buy his first car, or you know, he he's generally on the in the paddock or in the tractor working for nothing. So you you might buy him a Uta helping buy a car, your daughter, all those things go by the wayside. Now that filters back and comes back to supplying the town. That's feeding into that town. Like they all say about the town's dying. Well, you go back and say, well, your town's dying. Why is the town dying? The town's dying because the rural sector's not doing well or the or the um, mining sector, whatever. It filters back to the main, mm. the main commodity mm. in that town that runs that town. So how do we do it? 
nah, it's hard, it's hard, George. They're your first bills because they're the first bills the government goes to cut off if you don't pay. So they're the big ticket items. Once that were small bills, like your one or two dollars per ton, now they're five, ten dollars per ton. And when you're getting thirty-seven or thirty-six dollars a ton, mate, there's and diesel insurance. Workers' mm. comp, all those things start impacting, mate. It's cutthroat and it's very difficult to jug, juggle the books. What's the biggest uh, cost on farmers? Is it, is it power or is it labour? Both. Well, well, water, electricity uh, for me, we're, we're nearly hand. Well, water and yeah, electricity. It's, 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 it, yeah, it's, it's probably power and then, then water. So it's going to get to a tipping point sooner or later because uh, no matter how productive you get, no matter how much more you give to the enterprise, if you've got these input costs, particularly like power and water, and as you said, uh, even private sort of input costs like insurance, rising and rising and rising, what we're going to get is the point where the cost of actually doing business, the cost of farming is going to be more than the actual price you get for your product. And I think that's across the board. It's not just sugar. Sugar's, um, you know, you're a sugar cane farmer, sugar, uh, the price fluctuates, but that's for every commodity. We don't see those prices flatlining. We don't see them coming down of all of those input costs. They just keep on going up at a rapid rate of knots. Do you think there's going to come a time when it just is not going to be viable to do farming? George, I think we're in a, mate, you've you got it in one, and yes, I, I think I think I can see that in the in the not near distant future. But what we have to be careful of is bureaucrats and the economic rationalists sitting in behind a desk saying, "Well, okay, uh, we will look for an alternative crop that can give us the reward back that's going to pay off debt in governments and your water electricity charges." And let's face it, that's that's what we're on about here. We're looking for something that's going to pay back a debt somewhere else. And if trying to flog the bejesus out of us, you know, I'm not sitting here in road-coloured glasses. I realise that we have to pay our fair share along the way. But yes, I can see the point where there, there is going to be a day when you cannot afford to pay for water electricity. Now, going to sit back and say, well, right, as I said before, they're going to look back and say, well, don't grow, don't grow any sugar cane. We'll go and plant something else. Well, okay, that risk of planting something else comes back to the farmer. Well, then you've got the other factor is that he go and risk on a couple of There's also, if I can just jump in, there's also the fact that your capital, your infrastructure there, even the way your, your paddocks are, the machinery that you got, all of that is geared towards the particular type of crop you do at the moment. To actually change it to another crop would take so much more investment. You just probably wouldn't be able to do it anyway. But but go on. No, no George, because you've got you've got – Contractors out there that are paying over half over half a million dollars for a harvester and a hundred thousand yeah. to two hundred thousand dollars for haulouts. So, so you got a guy who's invested a um, million dollars in harvesting. So, where does he go when you start growing lettuce? What happens to the sugar mill? What happens to the four hundred workers or whatever that are in the sugar mill? It's, it's easy to say grow another crop, but very difficult to do. Uh, and so. You know, the high input costs, you know, you might get some boffin out there that says, oh, well, grow a higher value product. Can't happen, mate. Can't happen because, uh, you know, the world doesn't sit on, you know, on top of a, a desktop. Uh, in the real world, there's a, a lot of factors that mean that you can't grow something different that's high value. What is going to happen? We can't have the situation where agriculture and, and sectors of agriculture just fall over and we let it fall over 
by just saying, oh, well, we can't do anything about power and water. What are we going to do? What do you think we're going to do? Well, it's a George. It's it's a tough gig. Now, I don't want to I don't want to say the dirty word here, but re-regulate. You know, yeah. they talk about deregulation, and it's all higgledy piggledy, and water finds its own level, and it's going to be great because the consumer's got a choice that someone can grow rock melons here and rock melons somewhere else, and they have a right to you know. But no, that's bastardry of the highest order because it comes back to you're flogging two farmers that are out there that have gone out there and put all or gambled um, everything to produce a crop, and then he's going to get flogged when he goes to sell it. You know, where, where, where do you stop in all this sort of rationalised free market, free market tier, water finds its own level? Oh, how great is this? You know, but it's not great because it needs some sort of some sort of regulation to say, right, we have specific this area that's going to grow this, that area to grow that, accordingly costs of this. And I think people need, they talk about video conferences and, and, and COVID-19 is now going to isolate people to work from home. That's going to be disastrous. That's going to be hurt because that's going to be more of a disconnect that you can't go and see the colour of someone's eyes or go into the paddock and experience what they what they're experiencing. You know, in five seconds you get, I had a mate that's a grass farmer. He grows hay, and uh, he said to me the other day that um, uh, social distancing—it's what I do every day: sit in the tractor and just drive back and forth and back and forth and social distance from everyone. <laughs> but go on. No, 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 no. Ex- exactly that, George. I, I only live twenty minutes from town, and I mean, sometimes I might go to town um, two times in a day. Other times I mightn't go to town all week. And you're exactly right, your friends, you, we're social distancing all our lives, just sitting in a bloody cab of a tractor. But the whole argument comes back to a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. And and any farmer, as I said, I don't want to isolate the business people out of this, but business people as well, it's not working. The whole situation, the current structure, I believe it's not working, George. And more and more people are going to go broke. More and more hardships are going to happen. And You've hit a nail on the head there when you're talking about fair days pay for a fair day's work. So you mentioned what you said was the dirty word, regulation or re-regulation. We regulate the labour market and we regulate it because we say, well, people have to have a living wage, you know, some semblance of a living wage. You can't pay someone 10 cents, two bucks or even 10 bucks an hour. Minimum wage is a bit over $18, I think it is for an adult, so you need to pay them that amount. It's regulated. It's law. If you don't do it, if you don't pay them that, you don't pay them their superannuation, you don't cover other entitlements that workers uh, have to get, then uh, you've broken the law, actually, as an employer and and you get into big trouble. For uh, the farmer, and even you could say for the businessman, who regulates the minimum that they should get? And I'm not I'm not specifically arguing for it. I, 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 I don't specifically want to say that government should come in and regulate prices or anything like that. The point is that there are people out there who are working their backside off, particularly in the agriculture sector, but you're right, across small business as well, and they're doing it for less than what they would get if they sold everything up and just went, I'm just going to go and get a job and work for someone else. There's something fundamentally wrong with that, something fundamentally wrong with that picture. The Conservative One Podcast with George Christensen.
let's get on to then the area that I know you want to touch on, and that is uh, regulation. Let's talk about the example of the sugar industry, because the sugar industry is is uh, you know there's comparisons with the dairy industry as well. Dairy gets a lot of attention, but in the sugar industry, what we've got is districts where um, there's normally only one processor, one sugar mill that all farmers in that district supply to. In your area, it happens to be a foreign-owned company, and they, you know, tell us what happened. I don't want to spoil it. Tell us what recently happened with in the sugar industry in um, in your patch. George, we we had we had a very old milling company, a British milling company, sell their invest in investments in sugar. I think it was two thousand and ten to a Singapore-based company. Now fortunate that that company put a lot of money back into those mills huge amount of money back into into fixing little things and improving things and 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 power to them and and the certain gentleman that owned it, we had a couple of meetings with him and everything looked very good because um you know he we he, he said we're all going to work together on this and it wasn't going to be a them and us I think that gentleman's a very hard working gentleman very successful but then obviously he goes off and um does other projects and we don't get to see him anymore. And we went down the line of very historical high prices. We had to negotiate a new uh, cane supply agreement. We also believed that the facility that he was offering to sell our sugar through, we wanted to also keep our independent QSL that growers should have a choice, choice in marketing. Queensland Sugar Limited, which is a uh, a marketer, so you – you have some sort of semblance of control and choice around the price that gets paid for the product you're growing. That's 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 essentially what yep. QSL does. Yep, that's that's correct, George. And and, and so um, they essentially take that away uh, and 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 put it through their own company and for the company to determine what happens to it, rather than the farmer having some semblance of control over it. Yep, and 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 I think they seen an opportunity to to say that their plan, wanting for best and better words, but wanting to see their plan into being able to sell your sugar, they seen an opportunity to probably think that growers were going to um, go and automatically go into their way of thinking, and a few people said, no, hang on a minute, we wanted to retain QSL and have a choice in marketing, which we finished up in a huge debacle. We finished up in courtrooms and mudslinging and papers in papers and front pages and all the rest of it. But the main item was to have the ability to have a, 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 an independent arbitrational process. And that, and that process had to have an independent, if there's a disagreement under the current, under the current proposal, both parties would have to agree. And George, you and I know what coming into an argument that wasn't going to wash. And, and these, these companies are very successful companies. And to be very successful t- sometimes, one could say, many, many times, one could say that, um, hey, things looking like it's going their way, not, not, not our way. So we, we fought a long battle and you're in the middle of it. And so was um, Pauline Hanson and, 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 and Bob Catter. And it took a long journey, took a lot of money. And we finished up, we finally finished up getting a code of conduct. Now, that code of conduct, that code of conduct in the media was a lot of people cried foul. Can I jump in just quickly and just say that, uh, 
just for people that might not have the background to this issue, what you faced uh, was a situation where your processor, the only person that buys your product um, or, or that can, you know, mill your product, uh, was saying that you have to take it or leave it, what we want, and we're going to strip you of, of your choice in marketing. You're just going to market through us. Um, and I guess that there was a fear then that, you know, this was a loss of control and a loss of control to uh, someone that's sort of the benevolent dictator is might seem fine until the benevolence wears thin and then uh, then you're in trouble. And, yeah, this is why I got involved in this issue because I could see, look, this is a foreign company. Obviously, all companies are driven by the profit motive and the profit motive is going to uh, obviously squeeze more out of this system for them and less for the farmer. So we went into re-regulation essentially we had a code of conduct tell us about that like i said george the code of conduct i think uh, there was a lot of a lot of media and especially by the um, anti-media on the whole thing a lot of it come from um, the palisade government and <laughs> then also into the federal side of things unconstitutional we were up against it george but we were only fighting for a bit of a fair go and a fair go in an argument that's all we're fighting for like local people in that milling company mate you couldn't wish for better people and at the end of the day we have to work to get a crop off and they have to work to get a to get a crop uh, processed and 100 is given i believe on both parties but when management management's there about the bottom line when that management's not here doesn't live in your local district um, their focus is on the bottom line i'm not taking anything away from that they have to be focused because they've invested a lot of money but do we not then shore up our positions in leaving something like now i've left the industry and now i've walked away from it so do I have someone come up to me in the street and said, hey, what you did six years ago didn't lay a pathway or a foundation down to help our positioning if we do have a problem or if we do have a fight? So we had no alternative to try and secure that. And, and George, you're very, very akin to reading that position and trying to, how can I say this, trying to work out a solution with where it didn't want to go. None of us didn't want it to go that way, but... $60 a tonne historical prices. There was a there was a lever put in place as such and it got very messy and no one wanted to get messy, but it did. It took us some hard yards and took some years off people's lives, but we got what we got. But we need to protect ourselves and have a right, as you just made mentioned about, you know, Billy or, or Dan down the road, he might work for somebody and he, he goes to a fair um, trade, comes under fair an act where he gets yep. fair paid. Yep. And and we, we just wanted the same deal. It's not even as extreme, and I hate to use that word actually, but it's not even extre- as extreme as that. Uh, it's, it's simply this code of conduct sets up the boundaries of the negotiations in which uh, uh, you enter into. It actually doesn't say you've got to pay the grower this much. It just sets up the boundaries in which what can be negotiated and what can't. And so that's exactly what we have in the um, in the industrial relations sector as well. And Look, I think that there is a great argument, particularly where there are monopolies, that we do the same uh, for farmers. And so I'm glad to have played a part in that. But let's just talk briefly about the state of agriculture overall. What needs to change? What needs to change to get things back on track in Australia? George, I, I, I think I think what needs to change firstly is the governments don't see us as a cash care. And I'm not, I'm not picking on any one political party here. I, like I said, I started off with a lot of respect from a lot of people from all parties 
and I don't think I've got some friends out of it, but there's some really good politicians out there. It's just a shame they've got to follow party lines, but there's some very heady people out there and some smart people. But what what needs to change is to have more of an understanding. Now, if, you know, Billy, what's happening in the last couple of weeks with this um, with this dairy, 40 cents? Like, well, we just had a tragedy in the family. My father-in-law died uh, five weeks ago and he was a dairy farmer and I experienced going on holidays with him as well down to their dairy and they were doing it tough. That was a, a husband and wife team and they contributed back to the local district. They contributed. Um, well, that's all gone now. And I hate, I hate the numbers that he was quoting. Every year there was less less dairy farmers. So what we've just unfolded in the last couple of weeks on television with, with a measly 40 cents a litre, for the survival of of farmers, I think I think politicians need to accept that we're at we're at death's door. You know, the the, the rural sector's at death's door. We need to make a choice whether we want a farming sector or not, don't we? At the end of the day, there needs to be a decision. Do you want a vibrant farming sector? And if the answer is yes, then you take the measures that are necessary to keep people on the land. Totally agree, George. Where and, where and you put aside ideology. Yep, George, it's 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 an easy decision. Either the family farm, the family stru- structure has made Australia. We either get rid of it and we bring all the corporates in and everyone just goes to live in the city yeah. and we see what happens then. But in, in mate, the family to, structure to is a lifeblood. F- family farm. So that gets back to what I sort of said at the beginning. Like I have a love for agriculture, but not corporate agriculture, uh, for the family farms, for the lifestyle that that brings. I mean, that is the iconic image of Australia, actually, the family farmer. There is something to be said and gained as a country, as a nation, as, uh, as communities for the retention of family farms, if not for economic purposes but there is this very strong economic purpose i mean i i don't see too many corporate farms taking off the some that are out there but waxes and wanes the investment in corporate farms and corporate farming the people who want to be on the land are the ones that uh, have it in their in their blood and that's uh, farming families mate can i get on to one other area which links in with uh, sort of economic rationalism that is free trade I am in favour of trade, but I also think that there's pitfalls and dangers with it. Of course, for the sugar industry, we very much need trade because uh, 80% of the market is, is exported, basically. So but we've had this current situation where because we've just sort of gone for who's going to be the best customer for us in terms of what they're paying, we've ended up got a, having a lopsided export market with something like 36% of our exports going to one country. That one country is China, an authoritarian regime that's now, um, because they disagree with something we said, or actually more to the point, we're not towing the line that they want. Uh, they are saying that they're not going to buy certain beef exports from us and certain barley exports from us. As a farmer, what do you think should happen in this situation? Should the government back down because it's got an impact on the farmers or what? It's a, it's a big stick approach, isn't it, George? Now, no, no one wants, you know, we, you know, you imagine a farmer, like all these reef regulations that, that's happening at the present time from Queensland State Government, you imagine farmer turning up with that big stick or, or, or shouting threats to the Premier or, or to departmental people. Mate, you'd, you'd be arrested, wouldn't you? You'd be classed as, as, as a threat. So I can only see what I've seen on television and make judgment from that. And by crikey's, you would say, we, 
we're, we're, we're getting a big stick. And mate, I take my hat off to yourself and, and, and a lot of people have sort of stood up to that threat that it should be a business relationship. Now, if we're going to go out and produce a top-end product and that product gets sold and gets sold into that country, well, where's the threat? We've kept up our end of the bargain. So to have it threatened back up at work, we're not going to take that product or we're not going to, we're not going to take this because we want to threaten you. Where does that stand, George? That's, that's not the way – that's not Aussie, is it? That's not Anzac. No, but it's very much the Chinese Communist Party. Your your view is that we've got to we've got to stand up for ourselves and and not back down. Um, exactly, I agree. We can't back down to a bully, but we've now also got to go and find ways that this doesn't happen again. Because if we have the Chinese Communist Party taking it out on Australian farmers and Australian workers, well, that is not a good thing, and we need to reposition ourselves. But that's going to require a move away from free market thinking from free trade thinking and moving toward some strategic thinking for the country, and that's probably what's going to happen. You've just mentioned, though, Alan, uh, reef regulations. Can we talk briefly about the green-inspired policies which are really clamping down on farming activity, particularly on the Queensland coastline? Tell us how this has impacted the industry. George, the the impact of, of different things that are going to come out with this whole policy to me, and it's easy for me to throw a rock now because I'm, I'm, I'm now out of the industry, it's going to break some people now, $200,000 fines if you're doing this wrong or doing that wrong. But by crikey, you seem to stand back and it looks like the rural sector's being made to look like a scapegoat when there's heaps of other pollution from other areas, business sector, you know, towns and cities and, and sewage plants and all the rest of it. But that never seems to get the mention as the rural sector does. The rural sector's I believe it's going to be the scapegoat here and it makes everyone feel warm and fuzzy that something's been done, something's getting done. And yeah, poor old Peter Ridd's name's getting, you know, how many times do you hear Peter Ridd every night? He's just about on every tele- television channel for what he's gone and done and said, hey, excuse me, I think there's something wrong here. We need to peer review our process. I've only had 11 years of education and I'm no reef scientist or, or someone who's going to go out there and, 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 and properly read what's going out onto the reef. But to me, George, we're being, in my eyes, we're being made a scapegoat. And if someone's doing, if we're doing something wrong, I think a lot of other sectors are doing something wrong, as in cities, towns, treatment plants. Now, look, look what's just happened with everyone parked up for the last five and six weeks with planes mm. and, and, and cars and all the rest of it. Mate, you can go to the tire shops and see how much rubber's getting people going up and down the coast. Where's that rubber go? Where does that, where does that jet stream go? Where's, where's the fumes go? And it seems to be all tunneled back and focused back on the farmers, the baddie. The farmer's the evil person who's destroying the reef. I think mm. I, I think a lot more questions need to be answered here. Well, mate, we talk about a lot of issues there, but I, I want to go back in time for a second before I ask you the final question. I'm going to go back to the, I think it was around the turn of the century where there was this author by the name of Hilaire Belloc, and I've actually got a book in my hands here and it's unbelievable what he wrote at that time. And you've got to think the more things change, the more they stay the same. Just have a listen to this. And I'm going to paraphrase it here. He says, Today the state of law under which we live is poisonous to small property, especially in land. It is still more poisonous to the maintenance of it. A heavy payment must be paid to the lawyers, a payment which increases in inverse proportion with the amount of land that you want to acquire. 
title is rendered for the purpose of furnishing money to the lawyers as complicated as possible and there is no public map of which title can be established. He goes on to say, the economic advantage in purchase which the large man has over the small because he can wait, because he has better information, because he can pay for all manner of aid, is uncorrected by laws especially advancing the efforts of the small man to acquire and hampering the efforts of the rich man. In the absence of such laws, the establishment of small property in land is impossible. And what he's talking about here when he says small land is the family farmer. But he goes on. Once established, that is if you can get farming families in place, it can only be maintained by another series of protecting laws for unrestricted competition would kill it. There must be some marketing of produce. Unless the laws curb the power of monopoly, the market will be controlled by a capitalist trust, as is the glaring case in milk today. <laughs> there must be some transport for produce. Unless laws favour the small farmer, capitalist transport and its monopoly will ruin him. And when I say laws, I extend the term to mean every regulation, however small, imposed. For instance, if a man desires to grind his own wheat today, he is heavily handicapped by regulations which favour the big milling company and impose a serious fine upon himself. And he goes on to say, uh, this is detrimental to my profession now, Parker, but he says, now the organ of legislation in this country is the parliament. Of course, we all know the real power is in the hand of the big banks, beginning with the banking monopoly, uh, of which the politicians are either members or servants still overtly and at the end of the chain of action comes Parliament. He goes on to say, the beastly condition of Parliament is a byword, the atmosphere of bribery and blackmail. It is rather a stench than an atmosphere. It is the very air of what is called politics. Until you've got rid of that, you can do nothing. He says, my conclusion is that along with all the other items of a program for restoring family farmers, there must be a program for transforming the diseased centre of political power. You could write that today, couldn't you? You could very much so, George. Jesus, did he, did he write that yesterday? <laughs> Un- uh, unbelievable. The Un- uh, as I say, unbelievable. the more change, the more they stay the same. I think, like you, that if we are to have family farms, not just agriculture, but family farms continue in our country, my view is fully, yes, we should. As I said, food security, yes, but there are also cultural, community and, and quite honest, near spiritual reasons why you want to have that continuation of farming families in your country, then we have to make a decision and we have to put ideology, economic rationalism and all those things aside. So having said all that, if I make you Prime Minister for the day, Mr. Alan Parker, and you can make only one decision that sticks, what is the one change that you are going to make? Tough question, George. Um, <laughs> it always is. The one... The one... <laughs> The one, the one thing I would change would be to only one, one thing I could change. The one thing I'd change is to get rid of the one day and um, give me five years. <laughs> That's a cheat. That's like the, the, the genie wishing, you know, three wishes. I, I wish for a million more. No, no, no. You, had- <laughs> so you can't do the five years. It's just one, one thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rein you in. Just one. 
one because if you tell us this one, this will be the most important thing to you and I think it'll probably be the most important thing you think can be done for agriculture and farming families. So what is the one thing? One thing would be free water, George. Free water. Free so free rid- water or, f- or free electricity. Free Can't, water or free power. It's, it, 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 yep, it sounds silly, and the, and the person who's going to hear this is going to go, well, this, this fellow's nuts, and no wonder he sold his family farm, but I'm telling well, you. Well, the, the issue of water isn't nuts. I mean, it is not a man-made thing. This is a natural thing, a God-given thing. Quite honestly, man is the person who has imposed a price on it, and in this country, I think you'll find it as a former water minister by the name of Malcolm Turnbull that brought in uh, water trading in Australia. And now, thanks to that, we've got a situation where uh, the Chinese uh, yes. Communist Party and its uh, minion businesses have something yes. like 730 gigalitres of water in this country. So that's not a, a silly thing to say that water should be free again. And where it flows, uh, the landholder should be able to capture that and use that for his property. Before before any any listeners, George, throw me in the silly bin. Throw away throw away that aspect of people making money sitting in a desk somewhere somewhere else around the world on that water and open it up. And there's going to be other issues there that people aren't going to um, you know destroy something with it. But give it some time and think about what I said. Give it the free water. Take away that element of people making a business out of it. And that was just the one thing. The one thing that's that's all I could come up with, George. One thing. So that's it. It's a pretty good one thing. Thanks very much for your time, Alan Parker. And for our next episode of Conservative One, the podcast defending traditions and freedom, we have a very, very special guest. So stay tuned for that next Saturday. Thank you for listening. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. You've been listening to the Conservative One Podcast with George Christensen.